Hello, and welcome to How to Beat Your Kids at Board Games. We're glad you're listening, and you're in for a treat. A quick announcement before we get started. The episode you're about to hear was among the first we recorded, back when our only recording equipment was the Humble Voice Memos app on the still humbler iPhone 6S. Thus, while we are proud of the content, we realize that the sound quality may not be the best. If you find the episode hard to listen to for this reason, we recommend checking out one of our later episodes, starting with episode 6, Battleship Blitz, in which we had acquired our state-of-the-art podcasting microphones. In any case, we do hope that at some point, when you have a bit more peace and quiet, you'll come back and listen to this one. We're sure you'll love it. All right, enough chit-chat, let's get to the episode. Hello, and welcome to How to Beat Your Kids at Board Games. I'm John. And I'm Dan. And today we're going to teach you how to beat your kid at risk. Everyone's favorite game. Uh, it's the classic game of world domination, the only board game where you get to conquer the entire world. So today, um, we're going to teach you a little bit more about it, um, how to play it well, how to play it skillfully, and how to perhaps minimize your, your risk. Mm, I see what you did there. You get it? Yeah, you get what I did there? Yeah. While playing this game and in order to, you know, boost your chances of winning. So, yeah. So what what are your experiences with Risk, Dan? Where have you played? Uh, you know, the first my first exposure to this game was at the end of my school year, my sophomore year of high school. Uh, my teacher, awesome teacher, shout out to you, Mr. Tuttle. You're the reason I still play Risk. Um, basically, we, we just had the whole class uh, play a big old game at the end of the year. And, um, you know, so we got teams of up to four people um, kind of dictating our strategies. Um, you know, Tuttle would be the game master and execute the moves for everybody, the attacks, the reinforcements, all of that. Um, played a few more times like that and then... Um, bought the board game and played a lot with you, John, and with a lot of our friends. Um, oh, don't I know it. Probably over 100 games over the course of a few years. That's uh, a lot of games for Risk. Yeah. Now, for me, my experience with Risk goes into a, a deeper, more creative vein. And, um, you know, I, I, you know, I've experimented with, you know, some different rule sets that perhaps combine the rules of Two of our favorite games, uh, this game being one of them and the other one being Monopoly. Mm. But uh, don't tell Hasbro. <laughs> <clears throat> and uh, yeah, so how about we get right into it? Okay, so uh, for our listeners out there who, uh, God forbid, haven't played Risk in the last week or so, Risk is a game for three to six players, although it's more fun with more players. And it's played on a board that is uh, the world map divided up into 42 territories across six of the continents. So sorry, but uh, you can't conquer Antarctica in this game. The goal of the game is to take over all 42 of the territories by using your armies to attack and conquer opposing territories that are next to yours. Each turn, players get a chance to reinforce their territories, attack other players, and move their troops around. Players can get extra reinforcements by owning more territories, owning a whole continent, or by turning in cards. And you get these cards by conquering other players' territories. Yeah, so uh, that's about all you need to know for now. Um, we're going to get into more of the specifics later in the podcast or even right now as uh, we talk about the different house rules you can play with. 
So, um, yep, take it away, Dan. Yeah, let's do it. Um, so I know first what we wanted to do was uh, be very clear about the rules that we're talking about. Um, and we're not going to get deep into the rules or anything like that. But uh, there are a few accepted uh, rule sets. Um, and we just wanted to uh, go through them real quick and, you know, pick one to mostly talk about. And then uh, we'll go through the rest of the show. Yeah, so so in general, there are two places where the rules will vary. Um, we're not going to consider secret missions, um, we, just because Daniel and I don't have any experience with those, and generally they don't know what that is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but they're always mentioned in the rule book as something you can do as an added, um, you know, little flair. But we're not going to mention those. Um, mainly, we're going to talk about the two variations, which are, or the two places of variation where you can ch- you can either assign your territories randomly at the beginning, or you can pick them in a draft style. And then the other situation, the other place where uh, the rules can change is that for the territory cards that you get and can turn in for troops, um, you can have two systems. Either either one system where you turn in a set of cards and you get more troops um, based on how many people have turned in sets of cards before you in the game. So the troops, the cards get more valuable as the game goes on. Or you can have a fixed uh, fixed value system where you turn in sets and, and say you turn in three soldiers, soldier cards, you get four troops, three cannons, you get uh, eight, I believe, three horses, mm-hmm. you get six. Sorry, I skipped one. Um, and if you turn in one of, a, one of each, you get ten troops. So those are the two places where we can, where you can mix it up. Yeah. So in other words, like one... One system is based on how many sets of cards has have been turned in, and that will affect uh, how much this next set is worth. And then the other system, uh, the only thing that determines how much this set is worth is what is actually on those cards. Yep. Yeah, and so for the purposes of this discussion, we're going to stick to um, the rule sets where you assign your, your territories randomly, in the beginning of the game, by dealing out, you know, you, you shuffle the deck of, of territory cards and deal them out randomly, and, and everybody just puts one troop down on each. Um, and we're going to deal with that rather than the style uh, where you draft your territories to start, because um, in one, it's simpler to talk about um, the draft discussion warrants uh, a much larger, dis- like a large discussion that, that we are not equipped to uh, handle because we normally play in the random style mm. and we can give a little bit of tips but in general the the tactics that we'll teach you will, will apply either way mm-hmm. it, this is just we're just choosing one rule set for the sake of simplicity in the most part yeah um, we'll also be choosing the fixed set uh, the fixed card values where you know it depends on what's on the card um, because uh, because we feel that in this case the the when the card value scales, um, it kind of polarizes the game, and the game becomes way more about the cards than about a lot of the tactics and nuance that we can discuss if we use mm-hmm. fixed cards va- card values. So we're going to that's those are just kind of the reasons why we chose this rule set. Mm-hmm. And we will touch on uh, strategy with uh, the scaling cards later uh, in a bit, but yeah, Definitely. for the most part, we're going to talk about the fixed cards. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so. Uh, I think that's that's it about uh, explaining 
our rule sets. So now we have uh, the first part of the game, uh, which is assessing the board. Right. So, Dan, you know, walk me through. Like, you've just gotten your cards dealt to you. You put your troops down. Um, you know, what are the first thoughts that are running through your head as you look at the board? So I'm probably looking at, um, do I have clusters of troops anywhere? Do I have, um, or, you know, maybe... Um, they're not necessarily a contiguous cluster, but maybe I have a lot of troops in a specific area of the board that with some work could become a contiguous cluster. Um, obviously I'm looking at the continents. Um, you know, each continent is worth a bonus. So if I, if I happen to have a cluster near a continent or, um, you know, a set of troops near a continent, I want to see, I want to see like, um, sort of assess the likelihood that I might get a continent. Um, I also probably want to be looking at my opponents, you know, the same, the same yeah, thing for my opponent. Um, so like where, where are the centers of power, uh, who is likely to be, um, battling for a continent? Yeah. Immediately size up your opponents, I think is, is a huge thing that a lot of people miss. Um, uh, you know, when you're in this, in risk, you're definitely playing your opponents. You're, you need to size up both, you know, how strong everyone's starting position is, but also how strong the players are and kind of combine mm -hmm. that into your, your metric of, mm -hmm. you know, who's going to be the person to beat. Because some people are capable of taking a, a terrible start, you know, just mm -hmm. a cluster in Asia would be a pretty weak start. Yeah. Um, and because you're not likely to get the continent bonus anytime soon. Um, that'd be a pretty weak start, but you know, in the hands of the right player, it can be played to a successful game and a, and a win. Um, so basically, you know, fret not if, if you're in that position, but also don't disregard someone who's in that position mm -hmm. as a complete non-threat. You know, you might not have to worry about them now, but eventually they could be doing something and you need to keep an eye out. Mm. Yeah. So, so what, um, you know. What's a, what, what would you say is a good position to start in? Uh, so having played, uh, like I said, many, many games of Risk, uh, it seems like Australia or around Australia is, I mean, yeah, we, we were talking a little bit through this earlier, but um, like a lot of the times it, with a random draw, you'll have... Um, one person with two uh, territories in Australia and then two other people with one each. And uh, for that person, um, it's relatively easy to capture the Australia continent bonus. Um, and then you only have one point of entry, uh, which is Siam uh, or Siam to what Indonesia, yes. I, I believe. And so uh, you kind of just have this corner of the board um, where, like, you're pretty well insulated, and at the same time, you get a nice continent bonus uh, of two troops right off the bat, um, if you can secure it early. Um, so Australia seems like a strong point. Uh, we've talked about, like, South America. Um, you know, in terms of what, what um, makes a continent a good or a bad... Um, I guess a good or a bad starting point. Um, you know, you want to consider obviously the troop bonuses, but maybe even more than that, you want to consider like how easy it is to defend your continent and also like how many, um, you know, 
the position you have relative to um, making things happen in the game. So we'll we'll get into that a little more. Uh, right. I'll, I'll let you take it from here. Yeah. And so so that's you know that's a good start. And and often when you have a good start, you know you start with two or three territories out of a small continent. That's that's what I would consider a good start. You're likely to hold to get South America. You're likely to get Australia, for example, and get your continent bonus and and kind of get off to an early advantage. Now, in a case that you have a poor start, now say you have, you've just, you've really been kicked around by um, random number generation and um, (laughs) you get three, you know, you get three territories in North America and then you get one in Africa, you know, one, the rest of them are just scattered around. Mm. And I think that this is like a much more interesting situation because it's much less clear cut what you should do. You know, North America is a big continent. Say you only have three territories in it. Um, that's not, that's not a majority even, Hmm. you know, that might be more than any other player has, but you still have a long road ahead of you to get this continent. And so deciding what to do then is, is a lot harder. Um, and that's kind of what we want to talk about today are these situations where, you know, the, the correct choice isn't so clear cut. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so I would say, you know, in my opinion, I, I think that, um, you know, the North America start is, is actually a very interesting, but very playable one. Um, but your game's going to look a lot different than someone who's taking South America. Um, you know, you might start off with putting all of your, trying to consolidate, you know, get rid of all your territories that are, or not, not get rid of them, but just basically don't. Don't worry about your territories that aren't North America. Mm-hmm. Start slowly amassing troops, um, you know, taking one territory a turn, hopefully, so you get a card, and then eventually working towards a continent. But you're not in any hurry. So I guess what I'm trying to get at is that um, every starting position has a strategy. Mm-hmm. Some, are, some of them are inherently gifted, you know, and will put you off to an early advantage, but... right. There's no unplayable start in Risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and I think a lot of that we're going to get into later, um, and mm. it has to do with uh, with the human element, with diplomacy. Uh, you know, kind of, <laughs> kind of like in uh, real life, tides in history. Um, you know, it's strength alone is not uh, is not necessarily what makes you the best. You also have to be able to navigate the situation. So there are you know, strength tactics to play, but there are also sort of lie-low tactics that we'll, we'll talk about soon. Yeah, so do we want to get into attack mechanics? Yeah, I think so. I think really the only other thing I want to say, and I think we already touched on it, but yeah, just as soon as you see your start, you're really going to start informing, or you're going to start thinking about who, who you want to talk to mm. in the game and who you think will be your threat. And so as soon as you... That's a, that's a big part of your... Um, assessing your opening is seeing who is around you whether they're likely to be friendly or not and you can kind of judge this based off of personalities often um Mm. or judge it off of you know like actual kind of looking at it in a utilitarian way and say what would this person gain Mm -hmm. from attacking me and and um you know in the current in the starting position you say i think i'm actually safe because i don't think they want to kill me in north america they're not going from north america you can make kind of those kind of judgments um, right off the bat and get a lay of the land of how you think the game's going to go. 
mm-hmm. and use that to inform your strategy. Yeah, for sure. And I think I would also add that probably the more experienced players you play against, uh, the more the more your thinking will be um, necessarily more utilitarian and transactional and less sort of uh, emotional. Right. So, yep. Yeah. Um, cool. So let's, uh, let's get into the numbers of it and talk about uh, attacking mechanics, dice rolls, etc. Yeah, I mean, as you, if you've listened to the first couple podcasts, you know we are a huge fan mm. of looking at dice rolls. Love it. <laughs> um, so, you know, we'll try not to bore you. A lot of this math is, uh, you know, kind of similar to what we did with Parcheesi, uh, yeah. you know, a lot of comparing stuff, so. Um, but yeah, the the attack man- the mechanics in Risk are simple. You know, you roll, you can roll more more dice if you're the attacker. You get three mm-hmm. dice to your defenders. Your defenders can roll a maximum of two dice. And um, the the caveat is that defenders win ties. Um, so when you look at this, this creates an interesting um, situation where um, you know it's not really clear just by looking at some dice, you know, mm-hmm. who's really has the advantage. Um, right. And so when you, once you look at probability theory, you can, you can get an idea of actually when you will have the advantage and when, um, what as an attacker or when you will have the advantage as a defender. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what, what do you, uh, what do you think about this? Well, uh, so I know we've, we've obviously already looked into this, but, um, coming into, uh, our research that we did, um, I always kind of had the feeling that the attacker had the edge um, because the attacker gets to roll three dice. And winning ties uh, for the defender, while not trivial, seems relatively minor to the ability to run, to roll one extra die. But um, given that I hadn't looked into any probability um like this was just a hunch. It could have easily gone the other way. Uh, I think we're going to see that it's uh, somewhat correct uh, and somewhat wrong, and there's a little bit of nuance to it. Yeah. So you know, Dan's hunch is that when you're rolling more dice, you're going to have a better better odds of winning, and that's just you know that that follows logically. Now, when you actually look at the probability of a, of of individual roles. So, you know, we're disregarding when you have a large army and you're going to attack um, multiple times because that's just, those are, those create really long trees that you can't really go down. Um, you know, looking at a single battle, um, the probabilistic model will confirm Daniel's theory. Um, it'll tell us that you are much better off rolling more dice and that the attacker actually the attacker has the advantage whenever he rolls more he or she rolls more dice than the defender. Yeah, so so basically if you're attacking one on one, one attacker versus one defender, um, your odds of winning are about forty one percent. As um, an attacker. As an attacker. Mm-hmm. That's not too great. I wouldn't really want to depend on that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, no. And so when you attack with two troops on one defender, on one roll of the dice, um, your chances of winning and killing the one defender is 58%. Now, in that case, even if you don't win, you only lose one troop, and you can potentially attack again. Right. 
However, it might not be in your best interest to do so because you will have the lowered odds, right? You'll have 41% chance again. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it, it does get a lot better and, and it, it even gets more closer to 66% when you're rolling three attacking dice against one defending die. Mm-hmm. So it, it does um, come pretty cleanly into the attacker's favor mm-hmm. when they're rolling more dice. Right. Do you happen to have the figure on three versus two? Yeah, so so there's a very handy uh, paper written by um, Garrett Robinson of MIT. Ooh, uh, Massachusetts he, Institute of Technology. Exactly. And he has done some, pro, some uh, analysis of risk. Um, and so what he has come up with, and he says that when, when the attacker rolls three dice and the defender rolls two dice... Um, 37% of the time, the defender will lose both troops. Mm. Uh, 29% of the time, the attacker will lose both troops. Mm. And 33% of the time, both players lose one troop. Mm. Okay. So, so a third of the time, it's pretty much an even split. Mm-hmm. Um, but a little bit more than a third of the time, the attacker will win completely. Mm. Um, yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, so that's a, that's what happens in a single battle. Um, just know that anytime you're attacking with an equal number of troops as the defenders have in a single battle, mm-hmm. single roll, single roll yeah. of the dice, you're not looking at good odds. Yeah, you will probably lose. Yes, yeah, you should expect you should to expect lose. to lose. <laughs> yeah, uh, it may be worth it in very dire situations right exactly but, um, and we'll, we'll talk about a few um quote good reasons uh to do certain things later to you know to go out on a limb and do yeah, something. some some heuristics that'll help you analyze yeah. when to make a move and when not to make a move right but knowing you know you can't have these heuristics without knowing what the probabilities are like exactly yeah um yeah so and now we can talk about um the situation where there's a it's a bigger battle, say yeah. a, a stack of fifteen attacking troops attacking ten defending troops, um, yeah, you know, and and again we go back to the same paper where our friend Garrett has done all the work for us. Oh yeah, um, running Monte Carlo simulations, which you know essentially run all the way down all down the trees of how this dice game how this dice game could go. Mm-hmm. Um, and tells us who's more likely to win, you know, an attacker with 15 troops or a defender with 10. Uh, and what Garrett found um, is that actually as you increase the number of troops, so as you get further away from zero, mm-hmm. um, because uh, weird things happen when you have not that many troops, such as like if you're attacking with three troops and you lose one, now you're attacking with two. Right. And it's, you're at way worse odds. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, which is different than when you're attacking with 30 troops and you lose one, you're still attacking with only three dice. You're still only rolling three dice at a time. Mm-hmm. So when you're far away from zero troops, mm-hmm. um, the attacker's advantage proves very handy yep. and shows that a smaller attacking force can be, can, can defeat a bigger attacking, a bigger defending force 50% of the time, mm-hmm. you know, or like, you know, at least 50% of the time, depending on the ratio, yeah. of course. But um, Of course. Yeah, but the attacking force can actually defeat a larger defending force with uh, decent odds. Right. Um, 
Yeah, and and a good way to think of it is, um, yeah, like the the more troops you have, the longer your entire army will be able to capitalize on this small but significant advantage that the attacker has by rolling three dice instead of two. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, before you get down to the hypothetical point where you're only rolling two dice. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, when you're playing Risk, you you don't just want to have a 50% chance of winning, or even a 55% chance of winning. Right. You want to be very sure that you'll win. If you're going to put 30 troops or 20 troops into something, you want to be very sure that you're going to win, and you want to be very sure that you'll be in a good position afterwards. Yep. And so I don't want to take any credit for this. I found this on a competitive risk forum years and years ago, mm-hmm. and I've been using it ever since. It's, it hasn't really you know, driven me wrong, Um, but it's referred to as the 1.5 times rule. Uh, And the idea is that you always want to bring one and a half times. If if your opponent is defending with, say, eight troops, Mm -hmm. you want to bring one and a half times that many troops for the attack. So you want to bring 12 troops to attack eight. Mm -hmm. And this is is just a generally safe um, guideline to follow that will, you know, both ensure your victory and keep you safe afterwards while not, you know, over you know, overestimating the number of troops you need. Mm-hmm. So obviously you want to be efficient. You don't want to use, you know, 30 troops to do the job that 15 could do because mm-hmm. because you can put those other troops right. to use somewhere else. Mm-hmm. But you do want to be safe and you don't want to leave yourself open to a counterattack. Right. All right. And I and something I just thought of too, um We'll talk about the end game later, so maybe we should just save that for then. But um, when you're talking about just just two players on the board, um, your decision on whether to attack with 50% odds is going to be very different from if there are three or more players on the board. Right. Because of the number of troops you'll end up with and the relative states of your opponents. But we'll yeah. get into more of that later. Well, and, and a simple way to, to just think about it is that if there are... Um, if there are five players on the board, when two players fight, those two players lose and the other three players win. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they are like relatively. Right. Those two players that are fighting both lose troops. They don't. You can't gain troops through fighting. You only gain troops through reinforcing, um, which is why you fight. So you have an incentive to fight. You can benefit through fighting, but in general, if you're if you waste too many troops on fighting, uh, the other three players will have more troops than you relatively and will be able to, you know, build a stronger position than you. So the name, you know, the name, a big part of the game is, is not wasting troops. And that's why you want the 1.5 times rule because you want to be, you know, like you said, you want to be fighting with three troops as much as you can, because that's the most efficient way to use your troops. Mm-hmm. It's going to lead to the least losses. Right. Um, and that's very, very important when you're playing with, five other people or four other people that can attack you at a moment's notice. Yeah. And you only have you only have one source of reinforcement and it's what you get every turn. You're fighting against four sources of reinforcement. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if everyone wanted to, they could kick your booty. Oh yeah. Um if they all banded together. And that's why diplomacy is a plays a huge part in the game. Yeah. Uh, so before we get to diplomacy, we wanted to talk a more. We want to talk more about um, some other tactics, um, maybe non-attack related. Um, 
tactics, at least uh, when it comes to the dice rolling. Uh, we're not going to talk about probability, but uh, these are still some useful things uh, you should know. Mm-hmm. So um, one of these things is uh, place your troops on your borders, uh, not inland, with certain exceptions. Right. So the idea is that you need every troop, every, you need every troop doing as much as possible. And a troop that's inland that you know can't attack any other territories, like say you own all of Asia and you're keeping you know 20 troops in China where they can't attack anybody. Those mm-hmm. troops are literally they might as well not be there mm-hmm. um, because they're they're just rarely going to come in handy. Whereas if you had those troops on a border territory, you have the ability to attack with them. Um, if anyone wants to break up your, you know, your Asia continent bonus, they have to go through your 20 troops. Um, so it just makes clear and plain sense to keep all your troops uh, on the fringes of your empire mm-hmm. um, in general. And a couple couple times where um, it does make sense to put them inland or you know within your borders, they need to be backed up by defensive. I, uh, strategy, I would say. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to put it, but um, you need to have a defensive reason to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the reason that I use it mostly for is to essentially just make yourself look like a worse target uh, or like a more ugly target. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes your opponent will look and they'll say, oh, I could take, you know, say you have 25 troops split up into like eight territories. You have, you have seven territories with one troop on them. And then you have a huge stack with um, 18. <laughs> 18, with 18 troops on it. Uh, you know, an opponent might look at that and say, well, that's great. Um, but if once I break through that 18 troop stack, I'll have easy pickings and, and you know, John will be finished. Um, whereas you could actually put yourself in a, in a less optimal position uh, where you divide those 25 troops evenly, as evenly as you can across those territories, and and your opponent looks at that and says, wow, I would have to, you know, I would have to kill one stack of six, one stack of five, another stack of five, and all the while I'm losing troops and moving, and, and, and you know, it just, this just seems really complicated, and if I don't win, then he still has, you know, 15 troops left, and if I get stuck, and he can easily counterattack, Hmm. Um, now that might be a fallacy because if you run the numbers, you know, you might actually, he might actually be more likely to be able to kill you outright Mm -hmm. in that situation. However, it's, it's more about looking, it's, it's all about appearances. Yeah. It's Um, about, it's about making your opponent think that it's not a good decision to go invade you right now. Right. Making it look, look the least attractive. Possibly. Yeah, like why would they attack you and, and run into that when they can go attack someone else who doesn't have that setup? Mm-hmm. Um, and now another um, situation where it could possibly come in handy to put your troops inland is when you have a defensive bottleneck. Um, now this is kind of this is a little bit obscure, and, and you know it would maybe come up in situations like, say you own Central America, um, and you also own both Western and Eastern United States. Um, but you didn't own anything north of that. So, and you own South America below it. So you want to protect your heartland, which is South America. Mm-hmm. Um, you could put, you could split your, you know, reinforcements between Western and Eastern United States, but then your opponent only has to break through one of them to get to South America. So in this situation, it makes sense to put 
a lot of defensive troops into Central America, even though they technically could not attack anywhere, don't give you any offensive potential, but they're much stronger defensively. And in the case that you already have a continent, it seems like you already have something to defend. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's worth doing. Um, so, so I call that a defensive bottleneck, you know, somewhere where it, you can minimize your points of contact or your, your, the routes into your heartland or breaking up your core mm-hmm. um, by placing a lot of troops in one territory. Right. Yeah, so as, as is a common theme that I think is going to keep coming up as we go through this, you'll have a standard strategy or rule of thumb, like put your troops as like, um, you know, as close to your borders as possible so that they can do the most damage uh, to, to your opponents. Um, you know, and that rule of thumb will be true in general, and then it'll always have the caveat, unless you have a really good reason not to. And protecting your continent like from a point of defense that is um, more optimal than your border is one of those reasons. Right. And so this, this theme will come up a lot, I think. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. So uh, next we have plan your route so you don't dead end. And here we're talking about conquest. Right. So this would be an offensive campaign. This is only makes sense when you consider the rule we just talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to end your turn with all your troops in the right places. Um, so if you are going in to take Africa, you have a huge stack of troops and you're going to easily mow down Africa, but you plan your route poorly so that all your troops end up in Madagascar at the end of the turn. Well, you know, you're probably not going to hold Africa for very long (laughs) if you do it that way. Um, now obviously there's multiple points of entry into Africa, so that's not a perfect example, but you know, it's possible to plan your routes where you go into the Congo first, then you go to South Africa, then you go into Madagascar, then you go into East Africa, and boom, now you're up near your borders. Mm-hmm. You know, now you're up by the Middle East, you're up by Europe, where people will be attacking you from, and you have your whole stack of troops still. So it's definitely possible um, in a lot of cases to plan an optimal route. And sometimes it'll be obvious. Most of the time it's obvious. But there are times where if you're not careful, you can end up with, with all your troops in um, you know, Argentina when you really need them to be in Central America defending you from someone in the north. Yeah. Yeah. So, so basically, um, it's not a super technical thing, but you should just think about it before you attack and you want to you want to know when when your troops can end up. You know, most of us can draw a line pretty well. So uh, just don't go into your attack phase without drawing that line in your head of where you want your troops to end up. Mm-hmm. And and also this can kind of um, you know a similar vein is to plan your routes to avoid the number the points of contact that you have at the end of your turn. So if you can minimize the points of contact at the end of your turn. Uh, where you can place all your troops in one territory, and that's the only territory that someone can attack, you'll be in a great spot. So it's kind of similar. It's like you can take the reverse. Say you're conquering um, North America. You can conquer. You can take Western United States, and you can take Eastern United States, and say um, say it wouldn't get you the continent bonus, but you can take Central America. 
then you really want to do that because then you only have one point to defend. So you you push up your border so that your yeah, so that your border is only one one territory instead of two. Right. In this case. Okay. You might even over be overextending in this situation. Right. But it's better than but it's having better a split. better because they have to go through more than one territory. They can't just Yeah. They, a bigger they can't just for example go around your big um like your big stack of troops and take all your ones like like they maybe could if you were not at a bottleneck like Central Central America. Right. I see. I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I apologize. <laughs> but um yeah, that's that's the simplest way I can think about it. Got it. So uh yeah. Um beware of bottlenecks. Um no one to use them. Uh let's see. Denying continents. Oh yeah. So denying continents is referring to the term, or it's referring to when you can take one territory out of someone's continent just so mm. that they don't get the bonus oh, next yeah. turn. So Playing spoiler. Playing spoiler, exactly. So you take away their bonus. You don't necessarily gain anything, right? you know, because you're just getting a random territory. Maybe it puts you at the perfect number of 15 territories mm. or 12 territories where you get an extra two. But that's but, secondary. Yeah, that's secondary. The main reason you're doing it is because you're saying, well... I really don't want this person to get an extra five troops next turn, and I'm the only one who can stop it. Yep. So I will deny it. Um, generally, I'll let you know, this will put you in pretty bad standings with whoever has the continent. However, because they're not getting the continent bonus, they might not be too much of a threat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this is a powerful tool for controlling your opponents. Yes. Um so I think I think that's it for that. Uh, prioritize army size, not number of territories. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And this is yeah number of territories really is is a bit of a place where newer players can go astray. Yeah. They would like to own the whole board, and if they say, "Oh, you know, the point of the game is to conquer everything," so I'm gonna do I'm gonna conquer as much as I can, and see if it's everything <laughs> yeah you know exactly. at the end of my turn i'll look and say oh did i win no oh, okay well at least i tried <laughs> yeah and i mean th- thinking about it like each territory so each each new three territories you conquer will give you one troop per turn and this is disregarding any continent bonuses etc which do come into play but in general one territory is equal to roughly one third of a troop so Think about how many troops it's going to take you to conquer those three territories and get that one troop bonus. And then think about how how many troops are you going to need to hold these three territories. And like if you're expanding too fast, then you might be spending 10 or more troops, 10, 20, whatever troops to get these three territories and... You know, even if the game went on 20 more turns and you didn't lose these territories, you would just barely be paying for what you what you just did. And that's even disregarding the fact that you could have used those troops elsewhere to get some to get some territories that, um, you know, maybe gave you even more troops like continent bonuses or, um, you know, cards, which we can talk about later. Um once you've taken your first territory in a turn, you are no longer 
eligible for the card bonus. Like you've already gotten your card, so each additional territory you take is just another one third of a troop, uh, and so you have to really, you have to really be sure that that's worth it. That there's something strategic about the territory that's valuable, that is worth risking the extra troops because the troop bonus it. Uh, the troop bonus alone is not enough. Right. And, you know, it's not even... You say it's worth one-third of a troop. That's one-third of a troop conditionally. Mm. You have to hold it. Until yeah. next, you know. <laughs> exactly. And, and realistically, if you take two, then you get... If you take two tr- territories, you could get zero troops from them. Right. <laughs> and so it, it actually does really pay to pay attention to the number of territories you have. Mm-hmm. Um, and to say, oh, wow, I'm at 14... Well, actually, I could really use, you know, if I could get a cheap territory here, it would really help me out. Right. Um, you know, but in general, it's it's like going out and taking three territories just to get one extra troop next turn is probably not worth it. You right. need to have other reasons. And, um, you know, so I'm a fan of, of the of the strategy of, of a slow roll strategy. Um, in general, you attack once per turn. Um, you... Ideally, attack in a way that doesn't increase your points of contact. Is like you know doesn't doesn't make you more vulnerable to attack. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get your card, and you just be on your merry way. And realistically, the only reason that I generally attack more than once in a turn is to, um, you know, achieve a strategic goal. So secure a continent, um, deny a continent. Um, there are other cases where you can knock someone completely out of an area. Say, say, you know, you have a player who only has one territory in Africa, but and there and there's other people in Africa, um, but that person keeps putting all three of their troops in Africa, and it's just really bugging you because you're trying to get the continent. If you have the opportunity to take them out, you know, you should do that because then that's three less troops flowing into the area you're trying to conquer. Mm-hmm. So that's a strategic consideration that would that would lead me to attack, you know, more than once in a turn. Yeah. So you can get rid of six troops now, so you don't have to get rid of 21 troops in, in a few turns. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Five turns. So, I mean, yeah. So it can be, you know, and also, you know, another way, another reason to, to do it would be if you're actually completely annihilating an opponent. Like if you're mm-hmm. taking someone out of the game... Yeah, that's great in itself. You know, that's three less troops flooding. Well, that's three less troops flooding into the game, which actually is not necessarily bad, a good thing. Um, if you're in a losing, you know, if you um, aren't in a great position, sometimes you want someone else putting troops into places that can help balance things out for you. Um, we can talk about that later. Mm. Um, but mainly, you want to be the one who kills other players because you get their cards. Yeah. Especially if it's earlier in the game. Mm-hmm. And that can yeah. be huge early yeah. in the game. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, basically we've, we've been talking about um, reasons you should attack beyond this, this one, um, one attack per turn that gets you the card bonus. So, obviously the troop bonus is uh, the, the one-third, or if that conditional troop bonus is not enough... Um, but things like securing a continent, eliminating a player from a game, removing a player from uh, a an area that you are interested in are all good reasons. Uh, we also had a fourth one here, clearing a path for your opponent. Oh, yes. Which and is, this one is a little very, saucy. Very devious. Mm-hmm. 
But there can potentially be situations where, um, you know, say that, say that you're, you and an opponent are, you and another player are teaming up and you're trying to fight a bigger opponent who has six troops, um, in, you know, Siam guarding Australia. And so, and then they have, you know, stacks of three or four troops within Australia. And you don't have enough troops to break all of Australia, but you do have enough troops to take out their stack of five guarding Siam. So, you know, you can do kind of tricky stuff where you just take out your opponent's stack of five um, and pave the way for your ally to come in and take the rest. Mm-hmm. That way you can eliminate the stronger player. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are situations like that where, where you have tactical considerations. Uh, you know, other situations where... Uh, say your opponent, say your ally has a huge stack in, in some place, uh, this would be a little bit harder to visualize. So say your opponent has a huge stack in the Western United States, um, but they also own Central America mm-hmm. and they have one troop there. Um, and, and your opponent, your ally wants to attack into South America, but they can't attack their own territory they can't attack central america because they own it so they can't move their stack quickly through to take south america this turn Mm -hmm. but if you can help them and if you can uh, you know capture central america and leave a single troop there Mm -hmm. you can pave the way for your ally to bring their huge stack they can take out your territory that's fine no big deal it's one troop and you probably got your card from taking central america yeah um so they take their huge army and they go kill whoever's in South America. And, you know, for whatever reason, that was the goal of your alliance. You know? Right. And, and basically, you use these kind of tactics to achieve a goal. Um, yeah. And you need to make sure that that goal is going to be favorable to you. But that's a separate topic. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we'll talk a lot about alliances later. Um, so don't worry more on that. Uh, so... We touched on this a little bit already, but uh, knowing your opponent's state is also an important tactical uh, value. Mm-hmm. And um, just just so you know, uh, it is public knowledge how many cards everybody has. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have a stickler who's trying to hide their cards. Yeah. Um, just just you puts know? his cards in like one nice, neat stack where you can't tell if it's one or five. Right. Yeah. Legally... <laughs> Um, they have to show it to you hmm. because um, theoretically you should know. Yeah. Everybody knows, um, you know, when someone's taken a territory and thus when they should have earned a card. Mm-hmm. There's no secrecy in like whether you earned a card, you know, this turn. Right. So in, in in that situation, you know, nobody's expected to keep track exactly of how many cards everybody has. That would just be ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So instead, it's public knowledge. Um, hmm. That's good to know. And you know, in the same way, it's also going to be public knowledge of how many troops your opponent will get for reinforcement next turn. Mm-hmm. Um, and so knowing this, you can make a lot of informed decisions. Um, you know, knowing that someone has four cards in hand, you can be a little bit more frightened of them. Mm-hmm. Or if they're your ally, um, you can know like, okay, I feel safe, even though they don't have a great position right now, mm-hmm. because they have a trick up their sleeve. Mm-hmm. Um, and now... So, so basically use the number of cards that they have in hand to get a picture of what they're capable of on their next turn. 
So whether you want to piss them off really depends on how many cards they have. Mm -hmm. Got it. <laughs> and uh, the other, yeah. yeah. Well, there's the other situation where it's nice is knowing it's, it's, you know, the same as denying a continent. You want to be able to influence how many troops your opponents get. So if your opponent has a continent, you want to deny it so that they you know, will get less reinforcements next turn. Now, also, if your opponent has exactly 12 territories, you know that you can knock out one of their territories and they'll get an entire less troop less next turn. Yep. And that can actually, that can make a big difference um, mm -hmm. for a little bit, for a little investment. You know, say you take some no-name, you know, territory in Siberia. Yeah. You know, probably named Siberia. Yeah. <laughs> that has one troop on it. Um, but you end up knocking off a reinforcement for them, you know, that can be very useful. Right. Uh, especially if they're low on cards too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I, and I forgot what I was going to say earlier, <laughs> so we're just going to go to the next point. Uh, okay, so yeah, last on our list of tactics um, slash rules of thumb, uh, I guess we're going to talk about going first versus last mm -hmm. and, how, and what your mindset should be um, in each situation. Yeah, so what are your thoughts on this, Dan? Yeah, so going first means that, so like uh, at the very beginning of the game, everybody, you know, gets their territories, you know, randomly assigned, like like we said in the beginning, and um, gets to place what fifteen troops. Uh, so, so so you get so it you get one on troop. Number so like one troop goes on each territory automatically, and then you get to place fifteen more troops um, mm -hmm. across all of your territories. Uh, where you see fit. So, um, uh, I guess the, the way risk, um, not risk to, but risk works is, um, each player basically just plays their entire turn and then it's the next player's turn to play their entire turn. So in other words, you reinforce and then attack and then, um, fortify and then, um, that's it, right? Those yep. are three stages. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, so you reinforce, so you get to place, uh, your troops, uh, your three troops, which you get at the beginning after your 15. And so now you're going first and you have 18 troops and everyone else only has 15. So, um, this seems, it seems like you should be more aggressive or you have, you have an opportunity to be more aggressive. Uh, I would say probably, like, especially thinking about some of the tactics we talked about earlier, about like removing a player from an area that you that you want to be active in later, uh, or maybe consolidating a mass, um, you know, on a continent, putting yourself on a, in a good position to move forward. Um, you know, it, it seems like you can you can maybe be a little bit more risky mm -hmm. going first. Whereas going last, it's it's kind of like you've had, you know, three or four players or however many you, you've had go before you. And like, you know, if they decided to take some of your territories, well, tough. Tough toenails, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> they, they've, you know, you're, you're liable to just get harassed <laughs> yeah. before your game has even started. Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And yeah. also, if you think about it, um, you know, going first, even past the first turn, mm -hmm. you can also be the first one to play cards. Yeah. You can so, you know, imagine being, imagine being 
you know, potentially 13 or 15 mm. troops ahead. Say you yeah. had a continent and you play, you have a great, you drew great cards so you can play a set that's worth 10 mm. immediately. And you have a 15 troop advantage on everybody else yeah. that's played. That's huge yeah. early in the game. And then maybe the next person who gets to play cards doesn't get to play cards because you wiped them out with your set of 10 cards exactly. and continent bonus. Yeah, so, so yeah, you get you, you've, you can potentially capitalize on going first very well. Right. Going last, unfortunately, you're at the mercy of the other players. Yeah. And so you need to adjust your strategy mm -hmm. uh, duly. You need, you need to put yourself in a position to not get screwed over. <laughs> mm -hmm. Because if you're going last, then, you know, you make yourself a big target and then you die. You can't really complain about being targeted because you're vulnerable. You put yourself in that situation. Right. Um, maybe you didn't ask to go last, but you at least didn't adjust for it. So it's, it's your fault. Yeah. You played a strategy that you shouldn't have played. Um, you know, going last, you know that you're going to be a little bit weaker than everybody in the beginning. Uh, and so, you know, the way to, the way to capitalize on that, um, if you can even see it as an advantage, which it's not, but the way to work with it is what we're about to talk about, um, building good alliances. Mm -hmm. And, uh, our first point here juxtaposes nicely with what we just said. Our first point is if you're first, you're last. Mm-hmm. Now explain that one. So, uh... This seems to run exactly contrary to everything that we just said, <laughs> but uh, we're talking about is, a different kind of first here. We are talking about a different kind of first. So uh, here, when we say first, we actually mean first um, in the game. In sorry, that that wasn't <laughs> great. Uh, first in terms of the most powerful on the board. So, um, in other words, to give to give a real life example. Um, you know, at the beginning of World War II, Germany looked real, real good, was really strong. And um, as a result, I mean, not just as a result of this, there were plenty of other reasons, but, um, you know, it ended up drawing a lot of, um, you know, other powers into the war, maybe even that wouldn't have entered it into the first place because the threat of German domination was so great. Um, so similarly on the risk board, which is the same map after all, um, we, you need to think about how, if you are in first, um, everyone else isn't just going to go, oh, they're, they're in first. So I'm going to roll over and die. They're going to think, how can we team up together to take out this person so that we each have a better chance of being first. Right. Uh, so, like, this is not to say that you shouldn't be strengthening your own position, uh, but you have to be very tactical about how your strength manifests itself and how it comes off to the other players. And this is where we really get into how important the <coughs> yeah how important the human element is in this game, right? Especially. I always, yeah, I, I do always feel like my safest position is when I look like I'm in second place. Mm -hmm. um, it may not even be reality <laughs> because you, you know, people may not be paying attention to the cards you hold in your hand or something like that or, or the position you hold. 
Right. Um, as long as you seem like you're not doing great, mm-hmm. people will be a lot more likely to be friendly with you. Yeah. Um, because realistically, you know, who's going to ally? Um, you know, I, I guess newer players or, or someone might be, you know, willing to ally with the, the best player on the board because they think, oh, this guy's so big, he can protect me. Mm-hmm. You know, and that is that is valid, you know, to say, like, if I'm allied with so-and-so that no one will want to attack me because I don't want to make, you know, um, the most powerful player on the board angry at them. Sure. But that, I feel like, is a generally emotionally driven um, reasoning and neglects the fact that as long as you're allied with the number one player, you know, if your alliance ends up holding out and you guys actually succeed in knocking off everyone on the board, you know, guess who's going to win? It's probably not you. Yeah. It's probably the person who was stronger to begin with. Yeah. Um, unless, you know, unless obviously you can switch, you can find a situ- uh, a way to switch things around, but that's not always possible. Yeah. And, and like we've said before on this podcast, um, we are not telling you how to win second place in any of these games We're we're trying to tell you how to win your, your strategy should be to win. So, um, you know, at least in our view, when it comes to risk, when, you know, whether you come in second place or fourth place, you, you still kind of lost. I mean, in in this, in this sense. If you ain't first, you're last. <laughs> so uh, we're, we're having a lot of fun with that phrase. But it, in all seriousness, um, you know, allying with the strongest player when you're a very weak player um, is something that will, you know, maybe reliably get you to second place, but will not reliably get you to first place. Mm-hmm. And so that's why, you know, we recommend a little bit more of a complex um, situational conditional strategy. Yeah. And it's also going to explain to you, say you are in the strongest position, it's going to explain to you why no one wants to ally with you. Yeah. Because they don't want second place. Exactly. Um, so don't expect any handouts if mm-hmm. you're in first place. Right. Um, if you're playing with experienced players, they're going to rec- recognize that you're a threat and they're going to look at their position. They're going to say, well, you know, if I ally with this guy, I'm going to lose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll right. make it to the end, but right. I'll lose. And they won't do it. Um, yeah. So, in the case where you're not the first player, though, how yes. do you go about choosing your allies? So, um, I think it I think it depends on a lot of things, obviously. Um, but I think it depends on their relative strength. Um, it, it depends on what the alliance brings you. Let's talk about that one first. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that an alliance brings you uh, as a commander is an assurance um, that that person will not attack you, mm-hmm. uh, at least for for a given time. You know, obviously in this game, all alliances will eventually be broken or the players will be conquered. So nothing's permanent, but at least for a period of time you'll not be attacked. So uh, it makes more sense to me to ally with people that are uh, closer to you on the board, probably share a border with you so that you can concentrate your... It's like, it's, you know, it's it's basically pushing out your border in a way. Um, maybe that's not the best way to put it. But, um, 
you know, you eliminate your border points. Um, so, so if you ally with somebody who shares a border with you, you don't have to worry about that border anymore. You can put your troops on other borders, um, have a more fo focused effort elsewhere, and get more bang for your buck when mm -hmm. it comes to your troops. Yeah, and so like it, it, it works out mathematically that these alliances will work out, will, will be in your favor because, mm -hmm. you know, imagine that, you know, you're getting five troops per turn. Um, you're, there's another player that's also getting five troops per turn. But there's a third player that's doing really well, and they're getting nine troops per turn, or something like eight troops per turn to make it a little more nice. But um, if you and this other small opponent are using your five troops, you know, to fight evenly between both of your opponents, right? Um, you're going to send two of your troops to go fight one opponent. You're going to send three of your troops to fight the other opponent. Um, but guess what? They have eight. And so they're going to be able to outnumber your three, and they're going to be able to outnumber the other person's three. Basically, when you split your troops up, you're not really going to be able to deal with any of the threats, or you're not going to be able to deal with all of the threats. Because you're outnumbered troop-wise. Now, when you ally with the other smaller player, now your combined troops count 10. You're, mm. you're combined putting 10 troops on the board, which means you outnumber the third player who only puts 8 troops on the board, and you can overcome that player while not really giving anything up. Mm -hmm. um, because you're still, you're still gaining territory. Uh, you're still slowly amassing troops. You're actually probably losing less troops because you're not fight. You're fighting less. Um, it's just generally mutually beneficial for you two to pool up your your points, basically your your reinforcements to deal with a larger threat. Right. And again, like this is probably going to be temporary. Like once the balance of power shifts, you know, we might we might see a shift in alliances too. We might see the breaking of alliances which we will talk about. But, yeah. Uh, but yeah, at least um, an alliance might not be permanent, but it can, get, it can gain you valuable time. Um, it can gain you a, for, a more focused war effort. You know, you will not win a game without an alliance. Um, mm -hmm. You know, because that's, other that's people, just generally true. Other people in the game will ally. Yeah. And they will be stronger because they have the combined weight of two players going against one right it's just not gonna add up for you. right yeah yeah exactly uh okay yeah. so next we have okay so we have we talked about reducing border points um let's talk about making alliances to use your words with people who don't have their shit together mm -hmm. they haven't gotten their shit together no <laughs> and you know that can be a great person to ally with um because one they're not a threat to you yet even if they break their word and they stand to gain a lot from your alliance mm -hmm. so it's it'll be very easy to like obtain an alliance with someone who is trying to put together a large continent you mm -hmm. know someone's trying to put together all of north america and you're sitting down in south america and you just say hey dude you want to just call even um and not attack each other. And they'll be like, oh, hell yeah. Because that lets them focus on conquering the north, you know, the north of the continent. And they, you know, get to save their limited troops for what they want. It fits all their goals, right? Um, and what you get, you still get something great out of it. You still get less border points. Mm -hmm. And you already have a troop advantage over them. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so those are kind of the, the like opportunities that you could look for when you're saying like, I don't really know, like, I don't really know if anyone wants to ally with me. And while you look at everyone else's ambitions, mm-hmm. and if someone has an ambition that you can, you know, help out by allying with them, then by all means, go for it. And often, if their ambition is too lofty, mm-hmm. um, then you can take advantage of that too when you finally decide to break your deal. Um, yeah, so basically, they're, they're vulnerable to want, you know, someone who hasn't gotten their shit together, doesn't have a continent or doesn't have a, a troop base, but is look, is working towards one, is vulnerable to needing an alliance to stay alive and to stay in the game. Mm-hmm. And they're vulnerable to, um, you know, to you backstabbing them. Yeah. So it's kind of, it's just a win. It's a great situation to be in for you. Right. For them, they have to be very careful. Yeah. <laughs> if they want to come out of it ahead. Definitely. Uh, so, yeah, that brings us to when to backstab your opponents. Yes. Uh, so, basically, something you said earlier with backstab your ally, uh, when your ally is your biggest threat and would be crippled by your campaign. And mm-hmm. then second one is key. Mm-hmm. Right. Something to remember is that uh, people that are in it to win it, they're going to do what's best for their you know, for their empire. Mm-hmm. They're not going to say, oh, I don't really want to hurt so-and-so's feelings by um, breaking this alliance. They're going to do it whenever it makes sense for them. Mm-hmm. So as a player, you should never expect someone to keep an alliance just because, um, you know, just because you helped them out early in the game or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. You, know, you should expect people to break alliances as soon as it's good for them. And you should do the same. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um Unless you're playing some sort of longer con where you are emotionally manipulating people and you are saying, no, like, dude, I know it makes sense for me to break this alliance, but I won't do it because we're that cool. Yeah. You know, like you could be playing some crazy mind games, theoretically, but I'm going to leave that up to you guys to figure that out because only in certain situations will people be... Um, manipulable, able to be manipulated in that way. Yeah, and uh, and if you do that, could you please get it on video? Because I always find it hilarious to watch. Oh yeah, (laughs) it's it's always great to convince someone that you're actually allied with them. Oh man, Um, yeah, (laughs) only to backstab them really when it hurts them most. Yeah. Um, and uh, some of you listening right now uh, might be thinking, yeah, they're jerks, uh, but, you know, we are just telling you how to win. And sometimes that involves being a jerk and stabbing your friends in the back. Yeah. So All I say is, you know, it's, if it's within the rules of the game, it's not a jerky thing to do. Exactly. It's actually the only thing to do. It's the, it's only, the best. It's, you are honoring your friends by playing to your full potential. Exactly. Uh, yeah, and, and I don't even think I really addressed what you asked me earlier um, about, you know, needing to make sure that your backstabbing will count. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So the thing about backstabbing is mm-hmm. that once you do it, um, you can't really turn back. Yeah. Um, not only will that player that you backstabbed probably throw their full weight on you mm-hmm. because they now have to deal with their border, you know, a yeah. border crisis, essentially. Yeah. Um, also, other players will realize that you're not trustworthy. Right. Um, so good luck making alliances with anyone else on the board, too. Um, or anything other than, like, a very 
frail alliance where it's, you know, obviously, um, just like what we were saying earlier, where everyone breaks the, big tr- breaks the treaty at, a, at whenever it's good for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's like hardly an alliance. So yeah, you have to, you have to know that you have the chance to completely destroy this person, uh, this person's like engine, you know, their core and, and their ability to fight back. Right. Because otherwise, you know, it's not really going to work out for you. Mm-hmm. Or you're going to have a really tough time for the rest of the game. Right. Um, yeah. It is great, though. I mean, it really is in your best interest to cheat most times. Mm-hmm. However. Eventually. You know, yeah. Eventually, yeah. Right. You, like, you, have, you, you have to cheat at the right time, though. Right. Or else you will be burned. You can even, you know, one thing like with the emotional manipulation, you can feign that it would be a great time for you to backstab, you know? You can convince the other ally, like, dude, I know, like, it would make a lot of sense. Like, other people are trying to convince you, like, dude, if you just backstab him, you'll be be in a great position. You'll say, I know, but I won't do it anyway because they're my friend. When in reality, you're just looking at it, you're like, oh, I know that I actually wouldn't benefit from backstabbing right now. Mm -hmm. Um, But you can play it off and and make it seem like you are really committed (laughs) Yeah, you want to sell. You want to sell your opponent as much as you can without mm-hmm. seeming like a bullshitter. Yeah, um, because you know there is a little bit of emotional attachment, just naturally. Like, sure. that's the human. Yeah, element. it's hard. It's hard to avoid completely. Yeah, exactly. Um, but you just Even gotta be wary and don't be mad. Don't be surprised when people do it. Yeah, really, only be surprised when people do it when it's not in their best interest. Yeah, <laughs> because I have seen people backstab me when. It makes no sense to, and it'll cost them the game. Yeah. And I have to admit, I get a little bit angry when that happens, you know? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to get to, like, dude, yeah. if, you, if you attack me right now, we both go down. <laughs> and they're just like, nope, I uh, yeah. I want South America. And you're like, well, you know, yeah. I've got a stack of 40 troops bearing down on me from Africa. So, yeah. you know, if you want to fight those, yeah. be my guest. And this is, yeah. <laughs> and so, the, so that's where we come back to uh, make make an invasion of your continent look as ugly as possible so that so that this person doesn't somehow think that it's a good idea. Right. <laughs> but uh yeah. You know another one of the one of the funny parts of this game. Sometimes but, it's hard to argue yeah. or it's hard to argue with people that are, you know, intentionally playing irrationally. <laughs> and there's a particular friend I, that I, I'm thinking I, of. I, I know exactly who you're talking about. One. I know exactly um, what you're talking in about. In the end, sometimes you just gotta laugh it off. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you know, the most important part, you guys, uh, is this is a game. It's a very intense game. Um like do not lose your friends over this game. Exactly. <laughs> like, like realize, That's what Monopoly realize, is for. Realize that, exactly. That is what Monopoly is for. Lose your friends over Monopoly. Okay. <laughs> risk is just for fun. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, would it really be risk if you weren't risking friendships? <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's fair. <laughs> okay. So, uh, so we've covered when to backstab. Um, and, and when to ally. And when to ally. Okay, so these next two items and nine sub-items and uh, six sub-sub-items, don't worry, it won't be long, is uh, we're going to talk more about ending the game, uh, and this is pretty heavily tied to cards uh, in one scenario more than the other, but either way, um, 
they're essential um, to getting to the end game. So first we're going to talk about cards. Uh, so the mechanics of cards uh, are, you know, at the beginning of the game when you're dealt out the cards, obviously one side of the card has, or sorry, not one side, um, but each card has a territory on it. So like Eastern United States or South Africa, uh, but it also has a little figurine on it. Uh, it either looks like a foot soldier, a horseman or cavalry, and a, or a cannon. And then there are a couple cards that have all three of these together. Those are wild cards. So, um, as we've said, each time you capture a territory, so the first, the first territory that you capture on your turn, you pick up a card from the deck. And, uh, when you have a group of at least three of a, of certain types of cards, so certain combinations only, not any combination will do, um, you can cash these cards in in your reinforcement phase for additional troops on top of what you already gained from your continent bonuses and your territory bonus. Um, so how these work is if you get three foot soldier cards together and turn those in, uh, sorry, this is with the fixed value cards, so where how much you get is based on what's on the card. Um, if you turn in three foot soldiers, you get four. If you turn in three cavalry, you get six. If you turn in three cannon, you get eight. And if you turn in one of each, you get ten. Uh, and you can only turn in, like, sets of three at a time. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so the way that this works um, is that you can have a maximum... You can have a maximum of six cards in your hand, but that's only if you've if you've captured someone else's cards by killing them. Normally, you you can only have five cards in your hand. Mm -hmm. And the way that the cards are set up, you're actually guaranteed to have a set of three if you have five cards in your hand. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, you'll, you it, it's complicated yeah. to explain. But yeah, you, you'll have a set if you have five cards. Um, we passed the probability section already. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're done talking probability. So, um, yeah. Now... With cards, obviously the soldiers aren't worth very much if you turn them in mm -hmm. on their own. But if you turn them in as a wild card, you know, as one of each, a soldier, a horse, and a cannon, you can get a lot more from them. Um, so, you know, the logical conclusion is that you should hold on uh, to your soldiers, you know, maybe not hold your horses, but uh, <laughs> uh, necessarily, but you should definitely hold your soldiers um, yeah. as long as you can to see if... Um, if you might be able to turn in one of each, you know, yeah. if, if you say you have three soldiers in your hand, um, and you turn them in and then your next two cards are a horse and a cannon, you know, you yeah. probably feel like a dunce. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like and and this also makes sense. Not that, not that you'd want to, you know, hold the soldiers because it's a huge, because you have such a bit large chance of getting, you know, uh, a cavalry and then a cannon. The, the chance really isn't that big. Um, it, yeah, things would have to go pretty well for you to still put together uh, one of a kind. Sure. Or one of each. But um, generally, the strategy with cards tends to be to mm -hmm. hold on to them. Right. Um, because cards in your hand can be a bit more scary than cards that are already played. And, and you, want, you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Uh, so... I mean, when you when you play your cards, the the jig is up. So let's say you did have four soldiers in your hand. Uh, if you play your cards, 
that's four troops on the board. Um, people see the four troops, um, you know, they plan accordingly, uh, you know, whatever. Meanwhile, those, those four troops, you know, are, are probably not doing much for you in the way of defense or, you know, yeah, they probably, they're mostly defensive troops anyway. Um, you probably can't launch a new campaign with just four additional troops, maybe, but, uh, if you have four cards in your hand, um, you know, because like the general strategy with cards is to hold them. Um, sorry, that's, that was a little bit circular, but, um, if you have four cards in your hand, your opponents have no way of knowing, uh, is he, does he just have a crappy set of cards or does he have a big set of cards and he's just waiting for the right moment to capitalize and play them? And if it's the latter, then I have to plan around that and I have to, you know, make sure that my territories aren't vulnerable if and when he decides to do this. So um, if you keep your four cards in your hand, uh, you know, you might draw your opponent's resources away from their optimal strategy because they're worried about this potential threat. Uh, you know, so as long as you keep the threat alive, um, you know, you are, you're doing good. So, uh, doing, I mean, <laughs> doing bad to your opponents, but <laughs> doing good for yourself. And, uh, additionally, you know, it doesn't really delay you because, um, you know, every time you have a set of five, you have to play a set of three anyway. So um, if you have three soldiers and you wait two turns, then you're playing three cards, uh, you know, no matter what they end up being, even if they end up being, you know, let's say you were really unlucky and had five soldiers and you, you finally play those three soldiers after all. Now you have two more cards. And so you, you potentially have another set next turn and you definitely will in three turns. And, um, you know, if you would have played those three soldiers at the beginning, when you first got them in your hand, uh, you would have completely, you would have completely eliminated any sense of threat that your opponents feel. And it could take you up to five turns to get another set of cards. Whereas if you hold on and wait to play them, then you're guaranteed to have another set in three turns. And there, and that way you can plan much more efficiently. Right. It kind of also ties it ties into a, like this con a concept that we haven't really talked about, but um, you know, in, in general, in risk, you can think that a slow flow of troops is a little bit less effective than a very quick flow of a lot of troops. Because, mm -hmm. for example, when you when you're slow when you're slowly putting down, you're putting four troops down instead of three, you know, for six turns, right? Like you're gonna put those troops down. Um, they're probably going to get spread out just as the game goes on, you know, like you're not just going to put them in one spot. You're going to put them in, um, you know, on this border territory, you're going to put them on that border territory because they all need shoring up, you know, but say you, you know, say you spent six turns where you got three troops each. And then on the sixth turn, you got nine, you got those extra six all in one place. You can put those in a huge stack and go do something cool with it. Mm -hmm. You also have the option of spreading them out the same way. Mm -hmm. Um, but like you, you can be a bit more devastating when you can consolidate your troops into one stack or something like that. So, and then, you know, that it's not a huge advantage, um, but it's just, it's just a tactical consideration. You have more mm -hmm. control, uh, you know, when you can play two sets of cards back to back, 
it's hard to deal with a rush of troops like that if you're mm-hmm. if your opponent. Like, they just sent 12 troops at me, and, you know, they got a card, and next turn I might have to deal with another 8 or another 10. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I, I'm already reeling because they took away my continent bonus, mm-hmm. and I only have two cards, and I'm surrounded by, you know, territories that are hard to conquer, so it's going to be hard for me to get a card. You know, you, you can... You can really devastate opponents just by having multiple sets of cards in a quick succession. Right. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, another reason why why you hold them because it's more likely that you'll be able to play them closer together. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. And then uh, you know we mentioned this earlier about eliminating players, uh, but basically, kill people, take their cards, uh, and win. Yeah. So uh, if you have an opportunity to eliminate a player, this is one of those things where, like, you know, you can you can defy conventional logic and go out on a limb if it means you have a chance to eliminate a player. This is this is something where you would attack like one troop on one troop, for for example, if it meant you had the chance of eliminating this player. Because mm-hmm. you know, let's say you. Again, you know how many cards they have in their hand because you asked, or you kept track, but if you didn't keep track, you asked. And, um, you know, let's say they have they have three or four cards in your hand, um, then, like, this is a pretty big potential payout if you can make this happen. Um, so, you know, move your troops off your border, maybe, like, overextend a little bit, take that extra ter- territory even if you already have taken them and gotten your card, um, like, because cards lead to, uh, or can lead to such concerted deployment of troops, uh, it's, it's definitely worth it, at least strongly considering. Yeah. And there's a couple things to think about, uh, um, and that a lot of times it's worth doing because if you don't do it, your opponent will do it. Mm. Um, and you don't want them getting those cards. Now, also, you really don't want to make the mistake where you don't have enough troops to get the job done. Um, if you put your opponent near death and can't finish them off, oh, yeah. that is an awful position to be in. Yeah, this is Because guess what? Your opponent, you're, you're the next person who goes gets to kill them and take all the cards, mm-hmm. and you get nothing for your efforts. Um, so be sure that you can kill your opponent. Um but the idea is that when you have a set of cards to play of your own, you will have enough troops to finish the job. Yep. Um, so that's where it kind of flows neatly into itself. So you, you, you know, play your cards, you get a bunch of troops, use it to finish someone off. Um, take your spoils. You know, ideally you go from having five cards on your turn, you play three of them, then you have two, you know, then you go kill someone, you get three of their cards, um, or possibly four of their cards. Then you then you back up the same number of cards that you had last turn, and you've taken all this territory, um, and you know you just have more troops on the board that other people will have to fight off. Yeah, um, it it's just such a big swing in momentum that you really can't ignore it, right? And you can't allow other players to get it, you mm-hmm. know, without at least trying to stop them. Yeah, definitely. Um, so this is again in the case where cards have fixed value. So, uh, we said we would come back here. So briefly, let's talk about scaling value for cards, uh, and how, 
how strategy will differ, if at all, from with fixed values. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so just for just a quick re refresher, um, scaling cards, you know, the first set of cards, I believe, gets you four troops. Mm -hmm. The second set gets you six. I think it goes um, up by two until 12, and then and it, goes it goes up to by 15, and then it goes 20, 25, up yeah, by up five. five yeah, then. and that's how that's however many sets have been played by anyone in the game. Yeah. So um, not just you. Um, so basically, as the game goes on, the cards get more and more valuable. Um, this can lead to some pretty crazy situations where, you know, you can be a player with two territories, mm -hmm. and everyone else owns a ton of the board. But if you have five cards, you can actually be in a great spot. Mm -hmm. If you have five cards and you're going to play three of those cards for 60 troops this turn, you know, you can do something real special with those 60 troops, actually. Oh, yeah. um, so it completely changes the game. And, and that's a little bit why we didn't want to um, discuss it was because, mm -hmm. you know, in the end of the game, like getting five troops per turn from North America doesn't really compare to getting, you know, potentially... 60 or 70 troops every three turns from cards hmm. like you're you know you can get 15 troops every three turns from a continent or even like 21 from asia that's still nothing compared to 60 or 70 from from cards yeah um so like a lot of the game kind of ceases to matter once the cards get up to right. those high stakes um scenarios yeah and this is something that is totally unique to the scaling card variation right because uh, you never get yeah, I mean, yeah, you you have card values that are similar to continent bonuses in the uh, in the fixed variety. Yeah, and so like really the only, I mean, it's it's funny because you know, I wouldn't necessarily call it different because we're just going to reemphasize something we said earlier, but um, it just becomes even more mm. important to hold your cards. Yeah, um, you know when you're playing with fixed fixed value cards, you know, there are still times where it's useful to play a set when you only have three, you know. If, if it can secure you a continent, if it can, you know, if it can meet one of the criteria that we talked about earlier when you're deciding when to attack, you know, or that it gets you something useful, you can still play a threat or a, a set of cards that when you only have three. When you have scaling cards, playing a set of cards when you have only three of them better get you a kill, or else you're in big trouble. Mm. Um, when you have no cards, you're a sitting duck. Yeah. Uh, someone's going to take over. Someone, the card values will scale. By the time you get your next card set, the game might be over. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it even, it even almost makes sense, like, you know, you want to be the last person to play your cards, um, you know, if you can help it, if you can still be alive by then, um, you know, as a general rule. Okay, um, so we've touched on this already, but ending the game, mm -hmm. uh, or or really maybe more aptly put, end game scenarios. Mm -hmm. Okay, right. uh, so like, by this point, um, you know, we've we've talked about a lot of things. So, you know, during the end game, um, you know, there are like two or three players left, maybe maybe four. Uh, we're going to not really talk about the two player scenario because there it's 
It's mainly a brute force thing. I mean, you still obviously want to use the tactics that we talked about when it comes to figuring out where to attack uh, and where to put your troops. But because there's no diplomacy element, it just becomes a game of chess between two players. Um, I wouldn't even call it chess because there's not a huge, uh, not a huge opportunity to it's outsmart like, yeah, it's like It's like it's like chess, but it's more like, like checkers. But like, but like one of the you know, one of the sides is playing without their queen and bishop and rook because, like, that's how the game, you know... Played you know, out. Played out, yeah. yeah. It's not going to be an even game of chess. Right. It, it's it's possible to make up some advantage, some disadvantages through tactics, um, but largely, largely if you're playing someone who's good at tactics, uh, you won't be able to. They'll, they'll deny you the opportunity to do that. But, you know, in the case that it's just you and someone else and you don't necessarily have the upper hand, you're going to need to rely on tactics like denying continents, um, mm-hmm. protecting bottlenecks, um, rolling dice well. Um, <laughs> you know, Practice that dice rolling. Yeah, exactly. So there, ultimately there's not a ton that you can do to change the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but... If your opponent's not playing with good tactics, then then you can turn around in two players. And, that, and that's all kind of we need to say about yeah. that situation. Right. Where it gets interesting is when you have more than two players, or when you still have more than two players left in the game. Mm-hmm. So, in this scenario, uh, you're either the person who's the most powerful, or who's winning, uh, in quotes, or you're not. Um, so, if you're not... Um, basically, you want to try to stall until you are, and you do this by allying with number two, right? Whoever that or number be. three, or number three. So, yeah, right. Yeah. So it, you know, there's a there's a one position, there's a second place, and a third place. It's almost always in the best interest of the people in second and third place to work together to try and defeat the first place person, because. You can imagine that both the strongest player and the second strongest player would have the ability to kill the third player if they so chose, uh, but it would possibly lose them the game because the other player would counterattack or something like that. Um, they they could, you know, essentially the third player could be eliminated, but they hang on because the player who isn't in the lead would like them to stay on mm-hmm. to possibly shift the balance around in their favor. And so, so I guess at this point, having this this weaker player around is more valuable than gaining their three cards or whatever. Right. Just because of the probably because of the sheer number of troops on the board and the large swaths of territory. Well, and and because you you might gain potentially ten troops through cards, but you'll probably have to spend more than ten troops to take out the third player. Right. So you might be running at a loss, and until you can play the cards that you got from killing the third player, you have what you just have a, a you know you very few troops on the board relatively because you've just expended a lot of troops to conquer someone, and you haven't been able to replenish yet. Mm. And then the other, and then the person who is probably in a stronger position gets the ability to gets the opportunity to cripple you. Right. So it can put you in a very dangerous position as the second player to try and take out the you know the weakling of the group. Mm-hmm. And most situations it's not going to be helpful to you. Right. 
Um, yeah, so so we've talked about this a little bit, and like it can kind of lead to almost an infinite loop where you know mm. the worst per, the worst player and the middle player team up to take down the top player. Eventually, the top player becomes the worst player, and the worst player becomes or the, the second, second player. player. Yeah, yeah, or something. Yeah, and this you know example, the wor- the first player becomes the worst player. The worst player becomes the second player, and now the second player is the best, is the most threatening player on the board. And then the, the cycle just repeats mm-hmm. because the two lower players, when they work together, have the power to defeat the first. Mm-hmm. Um, but once they start to do their job, then there's a new, there's essentially a new kid on the block or a new, yeah. um, you know, new bully on the block. Yeah. Which it's is a shifting power dynamic. Right. And so it can kind of lead to these situations where if you're not careful, the game can go on for very long. Yeah, so, um, so uh, yeah, I, I just thought of a question, like, at what point, if you, if you have something like this going on, at what point does the serious, dedicated risk player say, enough is enough, nobody's going to win, let's leave and go get ice cream or something? Uh, I would say and when the, the dedicated and risk by the way player, it's 11 a.m. <laughs> of course, yes. Yeah. Because uh, that's how long you play risk for. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> I, I would say that the, the dedicated risk player, if, if they were truly dedicated, mm-hmm. they would keep playing until someone makes a mistake. Mm. Or until they can until they have some sort of information uh you could potentially have an imbalance in cards mm. that might just show up from time to you know by by oh, random chance shows up. You have you have uh, a wild card and uh, one of a kind. Mm. So something like that shows up where you think you're going to have actually a great troop advantage soon, um, and that other players are low on cards. Essentially, you just buy your time and you look for opportunities because they will show up. You know, people aren't perfect. Mm. They We'll leave weak points. Mm-hmm. And the dedicated risk player says, I don't quit. I'm going to wait mm-hmm. until there's a weak point that I can exploit. And until, you know, or, or until I have enough luck that I feel good about this. Mm. Because, for example, there could be some, there, there's obviously fighting going on between the three players. Mm-hmm. Say one turn, the fighting just goes really well mm-hmm. for someone. Mm-hmm. That could be enough to yeah. throw the game off. To gain a chance. Throw, yeah, it could be enough to throw the game off enough to where a conclusion is reached. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I would say it, it seems like an infinite uh, loop. However, in practice, there's enough randomness in the game to where it will end eventually. Hmm. I would seem to think that... Uh, yeah. I mean, I guess it de- it depends on how how big of a swing that randomness gives you, because most of the time, randomness over time means that you're going to get closer to the mean. But I see what you're saying. See, but that's well, that's one interpretation. But however, randomness over time means that over time you'll have uh, instances where you actually go very far from the mean. Mm, right. Uh, further than you would ever expect to if you're just sure so like for example like if, if you're if yeah. you're just flipping a coin thousands of times yeah. yeah if you flip a coin ten times you don't really expect there to be like 
five heads in a row. That would be kind of crazy, like kind of nuts. Yeah. However, if you're flipping a coin thousands of times, you might see a string of of about twenty five heads in a row. Yeah. Just right. because you're repeating it so often that mm-hmm. you know that that unlikely things will happen. Yeah. So. In a game like Risk, you just want one of those unlikely things, something really unlikely to happen, could mm-hmm. happen eventually, yeah. and make the game. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it could, you know, after the game, say you had your, so you somehow had statistics on who had the best dice rolling, who lost the most troops, mm. even though, even though there was that crazy event at the end of the game that allowed someone to win, mm-hmm. if you looked at if you yeah. looked at the statistics, you'd see that everyone rolled about the same. Everyone rolled about the same, just when at at the literal most important time of the game, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, the die was cast in this person's favor, right? And uh, yeah, so I guess you, I guess you could run into a scenario where, like, like this whole game of skill and diplomacy uh, and grit. Um, you know, in the end was decided by luck. Um, and for that to happen, um, you know, obviously uh, you need very skillful play by all the mm-hmm. players involved. Mm-hmm. Um, like you said, as soon as someone makes a mistake in that situation, you know, every everybody's going to have the firepower to capitalize on it, or at least mm-hmm. the next person in the game is going to be able to capitalize on it. Um, and so, yeah, perfect play. Um, even still with, uh, with a good roll of the dice can, um, with can poor dice enough. rolling skills, you can, <laughs> you can lose any game. Yeah. Especially rest dice rolling skills. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So yeah, I, I have also that we, we wanted to talk about what, what to do if you're number one. Um, right. Basically if, if you can kill the second place player outright, you've won. And this is kind of just what what we were just talking about in terms of um, if you get the opportunity, be it a favorable dice roll or, um, you know, a good set of cards or couples, like maybe a couple sets of cards, I don't know, um, then like you can deliver the coup de grace and still be in a good position to fight the second player, uh, even if you... For the third... Well, the, fight the, the, third. the third player. You know, if you can eliminate the third player, you fight the second player. Whatever it is, like, fight the player who currently is weaker than you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and as long as you can do that without being too overextended, like, that will vastly increase your chances of winning, even if you're slightly weaker than you were before, uh, in my opinion, because um, it, like it leaves the door essentially shut for like a chance outcome to determine mm-hmm. the outcome of the game. Yeah. And another way you can think about it is that when you're the, if we think about this in the way we've been thinking about it, where there's mm-hmm. kind of two right. teams, two teams going on mm-hmm. the team of the, of the player on top and the team of the other two, uh, the team of the other two doesn't really have an opportunity to end mm-hmm. the game. Right. If they take down the number the the top player, then the teams just shift. Mm-hmm. However, if the top player the top player has the opportunity to land a killing blow, right? Because if they land if they are able to take out one of the two teammates, mm-hmm. they win. Right. Or in a in the right way, of course, without leaving themselves too open, they win. Mm-hmm. So it's essentially 
taking turns to see who will land the killing blow. You know, oh, now you're doing well. Can you can you finish it? No. Then you're going to you know, drop down again, and someone else is going to get a chance to win the finishing blow. And mm-hmm. eventually... <laughs> Eventually, the first person, the person in first, will be able to land the blow, right. or or by some extreme stroke of luck, one of the other players will. Yeah, that would be amazing to see. Right. Uh, okay, so I think that is pretty much it. Yeah, that just about does it for us. I mean, I hope we haven't taken up too much of your time here on this podcast. Yeah, uh, saying, saying that's it was uh, an understatement. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, we were afraid, you know, we might, we we uh, we may have to break this one up into two sections because we're running about an hour and forty minutes here, just yeah. talking about a children's board game. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, but to do a little wrap up, um, you know, keep your tactics close, keep your friends further away, <laughs> uh, and keep your cards even closer. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to have to listen to it tomorrow to figure out whether that actually made sense. Um, <laughs> At this point, it's, about, it's 1230 a.m. I don't about, think we really care. Yeah, it's past midnight. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we we have enjoyed this, though. Uh, we hope you have. We hope you learned something. Um, you know, Risk is an incredibly complex game with so many decision points in it. Uh, unlike the other few games that we've done so far. So um, I think that's why we had to spend so much time on it uh, is because there's just, there's so much nuance and there's so much to dissect. So, uh, and you know, honestly, I don't even think we hit it all. No. So um, yeah, bottom line, hope you learned something. Uh, go play risk with your friends. Go um, play risk with your kids. Go play risk with your kids. Uh, go play risk with your kids' friends. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, be, be careful with that one. Yeah, but, be but, careful. But, but, uh, but, uh, yeah, um, yeah, go out there and have fun and, uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks right. everybody. Have a good night. Signing off. Thank you for listening to this episode of How to Beat Your Kids at Board Games. We hope you enjoyed it and that you learned something. We always do. If you like our show, please tell your friends and be sure to rate or review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by typing our acronym, H-T-B-Y-K-A-B-G, in the search bar. If you have questions, comments, feedback, or suggestions for games you'd like us to cover, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at H-T-B-Y-K-A-B-G at gmail.com, or message us on social media. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.